the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to podcast, Kareth Cooper Cherry. Today's guest is David Parsons. David is a historian, he's an author, and also hosts the uh, Nostalgia Trout podcast. So, David, thanks for getting up early and, uh, and joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Cooper. Glad to be with you. Absolutely. Um, so, one cool thing that I think about you is, like, most of the people that I've talked to outside of, like, the kind of older academics is, they're usually, like, maybe seven, eight, ten years younger than me. So, it's kind of cool to talk to somebody who's in kind of that same age range yeah yeah the ge- and the, i find that the generational thing in academia you know as much as people like to you know say that there's uh, uh, there's no difference in the generations especially in the way that academia has played out for me and i talk about a lot on the show about kind of precarious um the precarious job world for acad- young younger academics i find that's often like a big split between like younger and older so it's good yeah, it's, it's good to everything- talk to, to you for sure Everything's moved on to like the, what is it, the adjunct kind of thing these days, right? Yeah, and even that is precarious. It's, I'm, I mean, it's kind of crazy that like those, even those jobs are becoming uh, harder and harder to come by and, you know, pay less and less. And it's been a real, it's, it's a real fight out there. And I think a lot of older academics, they, they, they understand that on a kind of like intellectual level. <laughs> they get that, but they don't really get the day to day. And that's part of a wider, I think, conversation about class that's not really had very well within the halls of academia which you may know something about yeah now do you have a do you have your doctorate in history yeah i got my doctorate um from the city university of new york the graduate center in 2013 which seems like a long long time ago (laughs) now yeah (laughs) nice yeah so i have a ma in mass communications and maybe aspirations of one day going back to school and getting a PhD. But like you're talking about, it's like, I don't even know if it's it's worth it, but it feels like that's the only arena that I may be able to like get any kind of foothold in, in terms of a career. Honestly, like that's that was my position when I started graduate school um, in what, 2004? It was like... You know, I was out of I was out of uh, my undergraduate for years at that point. I I think I finished my undergraduate at UC Santa Barbara in 2000, and yeah. then went and worked like horrible office <laughs> temp jobs in the Valley in LA um, for a couple years. And that's when 9/11 happened, and like I began to think about my my place in history. I think in a different way than I had before. Um, but either way, the 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 my 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 kind of decision to go to graduate school and get a PhD in history was not born of like, Oh, this will, this will produce a great job for me. I kind of knew that like part of it was like people coming to terms with like people like me tend to hide out in the university. And I wanted to hide out in the university. Like I wanted to like kind of escape the day-to-day temp work and the service jobs that I was doing. And I wanted to do something that was 
um, intellectually rewarding um, and something that was I felt valuable to me and possibly to others too as a teacher. So it, in other words, it, it came out of like, uh, like you're saying, I don't know if I could do anything else. I just have to go do this. And now, you know, I'm like, years out of the PhD, I still teach and I, I like, you know, I'm still in teaching college and will be, I think for a long time, hopefully, but either way, it's not like it produced this fabulous job for me. And, and because I came from a precarious class position, it, it's not that big of a shock, if that makes sense. Um, but either way, you know, I, I, I'm better off now than I was when I was working those temp and service jobs in the Valley. So I can say it was worth it in that sense. Yeah. Um, I graduated from undergrad like right in 2007. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so like it was pretty much the even then you could tell like the recession was like basically impending. So I was like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll go to grad school. I'll, I'll do some internships. I'll take, you know, I'll get a grad degree. It'll be great. It'll increase my, you know, attractiveness to employers and so forth. <laughs> so then I graduated into 09 and that was like really, I think, the nadir of the whole thing. So. Yeah, I've kind of jumped around from a bunch of primarily like customer service jobs. Mm. Yeah, like, and what I, I've learned, it's it. like this hor <laughs> this horrible reality of like, um, you know how of like social capital being the kind of like key to um getting jobs and the key to really the whole like navigating that whole world. That part of it is something you know I kind of sensed. I didn't. I was never a person with a lot of social capital. I don't have a lot of connected friends or people that went to big schools. Like, yeah. I didn't like have that. So like that was a slow process of my own uh, being naive and getting to graduate school and realizing that, holy shit, it really all that stuff about like, you know, it, it really is who, you know, like that's that's really true. And like that's really can be very, I think, um, disappointing to find that out and to find out that you're going to really succeed based on, you know, your ability to, you know, get to know people that can do favors for you. And, and honestly, that's been the value of going to graduate school. And I, and I, you know, students ask me, yeah, I teach college. So like undergraduates ask me all the time, should I go to graduate school? Should I go to graduate school in history or something like, you know, in the humanities? And like, I mean, I tell them like it, it I don't give them advice one way or the other. But one thing I would say is that, you know, the, the, the real value of going to graduate school for me. And I think for others is that it taps you into a kind of network of people that can help you. And like, if you can, you know, exploit that and people exploit that uh, in various ways, but if you can exploit that, that's the real value more than the kind of content knowledge you learn or anything like that. Like people tend to think like, Oh, I could just learn this stuff on at like con university on YouTube or something. But it's like, well, that's not really what graduate school is. Like you're paying like, to graduate school. You're paying into like a, a social network that's literally what the like double meaning of the uh, of the, the the title of that movie is i think right it's like the social network is literally like the the powers that can connect you to money material wealth jobs etc yeah so big big topic that i wanted to discuss today was uh, kind of your book which is about coffee houses in a uh, in vietnam um, but I do want to hear a little bit too, because obviously you're a podcaster. So I want to hear about that maybe first. Uh, so just just before I do that, though, let's uh, give the title of your book is "Dangerous Grounds: Anti-War Coffee Houses in Military Descent in the Vietnam Era." So appropriately, I think this podcast uh, episode is going to be titled "Apocalypse Now." <laughs> wow, I had, that's funny. I hadn't thought of that one. That's a good one. <laughs> well done. <laughs> it, it's it's really funny. So my dad growing up was like super into the Vietnam War. And so 
um, like, man, before I was even in kindergarten, we were watching Platoon and like all, mm-hmm. all the great, you know, Viet- Vietnam movies. There's so many, there's like what, three or four pretty solid ones that I really like. That uh, were big know. during like the moments when we were young yeah. and that were, and it had, I think a lot of young people th- that didn't grow up in that era that kind of like don't understand the mystique that those films had like Platoon, um, Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now, um, a whole bunch of other born on the fourth of july even that were like really gritty movies that like had some like hardcore thing to them i remember like students at, in middle school like quoting platoon and born on the fourth of july and like really bringing up like really graphic awful shit that happens in that movie and before i had seen it in other words there was this mystique of like these movies and it really added to the mystique of the of the vietnam war in total right like exactly what you're talking about yeah, what's the what's the what's the Kubrick one that I'm fucking? Oh, Full uh, Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, Full Metal Jacket, Platoon, Apocalypse Now, and Hamburger Hill. Those are like my my favorites there. Oh yeah, um, I mean all of those made an impact in one way or the other, and like they they all have different kind of takes on it. I mean they're they're part of. It's funny because those films are part of like the way I usually talk about the the Vietnam War films is they're especially those ones, um, and especially the ones um, through the through the 1980s. They're kind of like part of a larger process, historical process of the United States kind of coming to terms with the Vietnam War. And I don't think they're particularly helpful in doing that. I mean, I like those films. Uh, I think all of them have something like artful about them, Um, especially I mean, Full Metal Jacket is one that I think comes back a lot in terms of I just Kubrick's kind of attitude towards war and humanity to me is one of the most appropriate lenses on the Vietnam War. But like. I don't know. Platoon, I mean, the politics of these films are, are complicated, obviously, but they're part of a larger process through which, like, the Vietnam War became, like, this kind of hardcore soldier story for, like, that Americans went through, that American soldiers went through, rather than, like, a larger kind of cultural process of really looking at what happened in the Vietnam War beyond just, like, American soldiers went through some fucked up shit in the jungle. Because that was really, I mean, even that's like 10% of the combat, of the, of the soldier experience. Like, most of the people who are veterans of the Vietnam War weren't in that, like, jungle, hardcore experience. You know, a lot of them were working uh, as part of the, like, larger war effort. There was administration, there was staff, there was, all, you know, a whole kind of, like, city that was, it's number of cities. This is imperialism. So, in other words, like, um, that combat experience became the, the main memory uh, that people have of what the Vietnam War it was. Like, the Vietnam War was... I mean, you see, even in Forrest Gump, we've done a whole episode about Forrest Gump, but, like, in Forrest, in Gump, like, the Vietnam War, if you remember, is just this, like, brief moment in the film, but it's all combat. It's all, like, stuff in the jungle and, like, the hardcore kind of, like, um, the fear and the paranoia and all that, um, totally through the American lens. I think in Forrest Gump, you don't see Vietnamese people hardly at all, but definitely not um, Vietnamese... Um, in combat, I think you see like, you know, guns going off and stuff like that, but rarely, yeah, the, rarely the other side. Right. Yeah. It's definitely very depersonalized. And I think even like, you're definitely right. It's more of like the individualized kind of viewpoint in all of those films and kind of the gr- grunt's eye view of it. I will say though, that I think <laughs> as cheesy as it sounds, I think those movies did prepare me for to be a very skeptical of what was going to happen in the run up to Iraq, for example. Totally. Yeah. That's, that's awesome that you say that. I, I think it's, it's funny that to, because I, you know, I often think of these films as like films that are kind of 
I don't know, normalize war and, and you make it seem like just a natural part of the order. And even like in some of their worst moments, these films kind of embrace a masculinity that says that, you know, this is what manhood is, is, you know, doing this for your bros and doing it for your nation and that kind of thing. But it's interesting to hear you say that, like, it, these films made you skeptical because I think that you're right. The, the films are kind of made by liberals, really. Yeah. Like the films are like Oliver Stone. Yeah. This one, you know. Right. They're kind of meant to be in some way, I guess, anti-war. They're meant to kind of they're not necessarily I mean, they're definitely not like pro Vietnam War films. They're more like Vietnam War. They're more kind of like shifting the focus of the right. narrative, yeah, if that makes so. sense. But it's yeah. great because I, I agree. I mean, I pick up on like all that. I mean, fuck uh, Full Metal Jacket. That opening sequence is literally just a, a, a man like Vincent D'Onofrio's character is basically just like tortured to the point where he murders and kills himself. Like he murders the drill sergeant and kills himself. And it's like that. How can you get anything from that? But like, just like the pure um, kind of evil of this institution and what it does to people's minds. So like, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that the films, they're complicated. They're, 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 but they're, they're also very, at this point, much of a kind of like what you're saying. They're, they're, they're a genre unto their own. You know what I mean? Like the Vietnam War film has certain, expectations on it right. that it's hard to get out of those i think even when they make them now I think mel gibson made one called we were soldiers <laughs> did you see that one i did see that i don't remember it hardly i'll say this <laughs> i was i was really high when i watched that movie and <laughs> it blew me away because i put it on and i was like you know I, I it's hard for me to watch vietnam stuff especially like if i hadn't seen it before i'm like because it feels so personal i've read so many I've, I've like spent so much time thinking about the vietnam war from so many different angles so then to watch like two hours of like hollywood and like mel gibson like try to like put it that story together into some like coherent thing is really always very um i don't know there's a dissociation that almost happens while i'm watching it but either way i will say this there's one thing i'd say about this that film is i have never seen the Vietnamese side, particularly the combat side of the Vietnam War, shown uh, in such detail. You really see the people within the within the tunnels. You see um, the National Liberation Front like strategizing. You understand why they're doing the things they're doing. It's not just like all these other films where it's just like Americans in the jungle getting shot at by crazy people. It's instead you like get what's happening, even if you, they don't really get like tell you the politics. And it's definitely still like an anti-communist film. You see why they're like doing their military strategies, and it's really it's really refreshing to see that. That film is like. I think it's a. It ends up being a pretty like straightforward American, like pro-American narrative. Yeah. But I mean, it's Mel Gibson for Christ's sake. But but at the same time, I, I will. I'll, I'll give it credit for doing something that like most of those other films don't do. Yeah, there's a, a just a couple of funny anecdotes. One is that Apocalypse Now, in particular, was really the reason I ever like found out about who the fuck Hegel was. <laughs> because it was like the Dennis Hopper character yeah. was talking about that's dialectic physics, man. You can't li land on a fourth or one. Either love somebody or you hate somebody. So I like start googling dialectics and shit back in the day. So that's like the only exposure that I ever had to Hegel, even like in philosophy classes or anything. But it was just like from that fucking movie. Which I think I is love moments funny. like that. I I try to I mean you talk about my podcast, but I try to find moments like that on the nostalgia trap where people kind of like 
they they kind of vi- saw a vision of like some crack in the culture that like was like a window that you could like jump through you know and explore this other world that that was not really there but it was underneath and like i definitely identify with the you you like describing the dennis hopper character in apocalypse now because when he shows up he's so i mean i think he is like dennis hopper the actor is literally like on acid while like while they're filming this or like they're he's really like uh, has that kind of reputation and has that kind of like counterculture kind of energy but either way it was he was a person like that for me where i was kind of what is he talking about and i love that you're like again like saying it's a, it's philosophy like something that he kind of hinted at yeah he's one of those i think there are lots of um i think vietnam war films in their own in their own way can like function as those kind of windows into a whole other thing because for me I, and I think a lot of people, I watch those films and thought, what are they, like, if this is how fucked up they're showing you in the Hollywood movie, like, what was it really like? What was this history? What history are they drawing on to, like, make this? And is it real and is it not? And that investigation can lead you down, like, whole other corridors. And I would say that, you know, those films being around and popular when I was young were definitely influential on me wanting to find out, like, what's the real story of Vietnam? I mean, even Platoon had that sort of My Lai Massacre element to it that yeah. I think really just was Horrible. good in ter- just in terms of showing, like, this is really what war winds up being is just this kind of fucked up. Screaming women and children in a village and, like, pissed off dudes with guns shooting at that. Yeah, that I, those, those scenes I saw, you know what's funny is I think I saw that clip. You talk about, like, cracks in the culture. My, uh, my mom and dad my mom especially were like big fans of like the academy awards growing up so like we watched we watched those we like my, we ordered pizza that night and we watched the academy awards and you know billy crystal like that era it was a big deal but yeah. either way i remember when they, they showed platoon they show like clips if you remember they show like co- brief clips so i didn't see platoon i was like a little kid i was like six seven eight years old very very, very young but that clip you're talking about and i, I think it's like Willem Dafoe or someone puts like a gun to a woman's like an old woman's head and there are everyone is screaming I, I don't think I was like tr- literally traumatized by that clip they showed that clip in the Academy Awards like a, it's seriously like a 30 second clip and just that moment like like you're talking about it hinted at something much larger and I associated Vietnam in my head with whatever I knew about like the Holocaust like that connection was already made by this clip from an Oliver Stone movie on like the Academy Awards to a little kid's eyes. It's, it's crazy how things can work that way. Yeah, definitely. Cause you have, uh, it's Kevin Dillon, like smashes that like kid's head with the butt of his rifle and is like, Oh man, you see that fucking head come apart, man. Oh God. Yeah. All that shit really fucks with you. And just seeing like that, you know, ultimately like probably like a similar class, background for both characters but you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it's kind of that being on two different sides of this insanity yeah war movies we could go on and on have you seen fury (laughs) have you seen that movie the brad pitt oh yes yes yes. oh that was pretty gritty too yeah that one has exactly what you're talking about that kind of like they always you know especially world war ii movies always have like these nods to like the different like diverse like class people that were like fighting the war you know they always have like a what you're talking about like a working class brooklyn guy that's like you know that kind of guy and that i felt like fury did that like really on a very kind of like visceral level they did that class stuff um and the kind of intersection of class and violence in a way that 
other films hadn't done. So I guess the, we, we've seen some development over the years in Hollywood in, in like viewing war and kind of taking it apart a little bit more. But that film was violent as hell, I remember. I think the, from that film, the one scene that I remember the most, like the most tense scene is where they go into the house and the young, like the young ladies are kind of hanging out there. And it was like, oh, what the, what the fuck's going to happen here? <laughs> Yeah, you're, I mean, you're assuming this is like a scene of uh, rape and, and violence that's going to happen against civilians. And I think that, I mean, that's the stuff that like comes out. I mean, we were just talking about Milai Massacre, right? The platoon scenes. It's like the stuff where civilians are involved that like they, they, they those, are the, those are the scenes that, you know, filmmakers are very adept at kind of like engaging that particular emotional kind of element within us, right? So like those are the scenes that traumatize us the most, I think. But I guess go, go back to more substantive things. So, kind of what what inspired you to to write the book in the first place? Um, so, you know, I, in graduate school, I wanted to write something about the Vietnam War era. I particularly was interested, though, in the left and like uh, what the left was doing during the nineteen sixties and seventies. And I, you know, I remember just very much kind of wanting to explore the intersection between the counterculture of the 60s and 70s, like the, the, the rising kind of interest in drugs and sexuality and Eastern religions and mysticism and things like that. Um, I wanted to in- kind of investigate the intersection of those things with, uh, with the larger kind of political moments of that era and political movements of that era. So, you know, it's kind of all of this kind of got mixed up most famously in like the Students for Democratic Society, SDS, who like their trajectory went from like being pretty straightforward radicals, uh, pretty straightforward, like Marxist influenced radicals, left left liberal, left radicals, whatever, to becoming like a coalition that broke apart because they were like talking about, you know, LSD and racial violence and like self-defense and, you know, anarchy. And like they can't kind of like are this microcosm of this exploding student left. So I was kind of interested in telling like the, a story within there. But I also knew that that story had been told a million times, like, you know, the, the like students of uh, the new left at Berkeley and all that kind of stuff. And like basically the cliche 60s story you get in like films like Forrest Gump. So I, I eventually discovered, you know, this kind of path to talk about the things I wanted to talk about. And that path was through um understanding that there was a movement against the the Vietnam War within the American military during um during the later years of the Vietnam War but really like beginning right 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 at the outset of the war in 1964-65 but either way like discovering that there was like a kind of insurrection rebellion within the American military that isn't really covered that much in the films we just mentioned at all like they kind of hint at it sometimes you see a little of it in platoon actually but either way, I was interested in kind of like the fact that, you know, those films gave you an, an idea that there was something else going on in the military, particularly around sex, drugs and rock and roll. If you remember, like they're always playing like Doors songs and there's always like a hippie soldier and there's a lot of pot in these Vietnam movies. And there's like there's hints at LSD and like this whole hippie thing going on. So I, I wanted to know more about that intersection uh, within the American military. And I discovered this phenomenon that no one had written about. And I was very lucky. And that phenomenon is the GI coffee houses, which are a network of coffee houses that were opened up in the United States uh, outside American military bases by um, activists. And that would be like civilian activists and uh, veterans and active duty uh, GIs in some cases who opened these coffee houses and, and really made them movement centers 
uh, places where the anti-war movement could make contact with people within the American military and create coalitions and really like build what is eventually called the GI movement. A GI movement is like a movement of tens of thousands of American soldiers um, and veterans and civilians who join them uh, that kind of bring attention to uh, the war and to end the war through the, the institution of the American military. So the coffee houses are basically the movement center of this GI movement. Um, and the, the book is a history of the whole coffee house network, but it's really a history of kind of the, the larger GI movement and what people within the American military did to end the war, because it's not the way that most people remember the American military experience in Vietnam, right? They remember the combat. They remember the hardcore stuff. They don't remember that like thousands and thousands of people refused to participate in this war and not only re refused to participate, but became active against the American government and tried to stop it. So like that part is a story that I wish more people would pay attention to because it's kind of a critical lesson for everyone, but but particularly for the left. And like, I want the left to kind of think more about you know, our intersection with the American military. Yeah, I definitely think at least for me, what I always get or what the, the image was always projected that the left was spitting on the troops. You know what I mean? That's like the popular imagination thing is, oh, the left were spitting on the troops and calling them baby killers and doing a bunch of kind of shit Which like you that. see in movies. You see that, right. that exact image, yeah. Shit, even in Forrest Gump. He's like, who's the, who's the baby killer to Forrest? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. So that's interesting. I'm, that's cool that you, there's like a, a different take on that. That I Yeah, that definitely doesn't get a lot of uh, attention for sure. I, I wasn't even aware of that at all, so... Well, I don't know. Have you heard of the... I mean, there's a book by uh, a sociologist named Jerry Lemke um, called The Spitting Image. That was another like kind of uh, book for me to like kind of hook onto early in graduate school and understand that there was some meat to what I was actually talking about. So he did a study on... It's called The Spitting Image, and it's literally about uh, the American memory of the Vietnam War. And he kind of investigated like this story is this really happened? He's like, wanted to know, did this really happen? Are there stories about people being spit on? Like literally American soldiers in, I mean, the story is always the same. It's always that an American soldier stepped off a plane and at the airport, there were hippies and protesters there who spit on the soldiers and they spit on them at the airports. And that became kind of the urban legend uh, in Rambo. Sylvester Stallone actually repeats this legend at the end. He's like, they're all lined up at the airport spitting on us. Uh, so, like, the legend has been repeated so much that it kind of became reality. There's even a comic book from that year, from the 80s uh, that depicts, like, a, like a, basically, like, a big, fat, like, ugly, hippie woman spitting on a soldier at the airport. So, like, Lemke does a whole book where he investigates this, and he finds out, like, he can't find any evidence of any of this being true. Not only that, like... The airport thing makes no sense. Like they weren't like getting off at like San Francisco, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. like from these. It wasn't happening this way, and he couldn't find any uh, evidence that you know any of this had actually happened. Despite the fact that many people said, "Oh, I remember it happened to someone I knew," or this and that. And I've brought this up in my classes, and like undergraduates, eighteen years old, sitting in my class, say. No, like I had an uncle and he got spit on all the time. Everyone, <laughs> that's the thing is it's always this thing about like everybody spit, like constantly like just rivers of spit being thrown at 
So and like the the story just doesn't hold up. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense that like, I mean, there's anger at there's a really intense anger at police officers in America right now. Do you hear about people spitting on cops? You know, like not that much, right? Like you would think that would be a. In other words, like the phenomenon kind of got blown up as a perception. Like I think there would be a lot of police officers that say people spit on us. It was really bad, but it's like a memory that's kind of like part of a larger historical process. So anyway, the spitting image book really like hinted at something profound to me about the Vietnam War, which was that people have Americans have fucked up memories of this war, and that the war, um, as much as it it was an initiation process into another reality it was into a like kind of false reality for a lot of people they have a false memory of what this war is in other words most americans do not think of the the vietnam war as like an aggressive imperial genocide perpetrated by the united states yeah. upon the a helpless nation of impoverished people they don't think of it that way at all like they think of the vietnam war as something that happened to us like oh like my uncle was in the Vietnam War. My grandpa was in the Vietnam War, and he got fucked up, and he came home, and like he had a hard time getting a job, and people spit on him, and you know the life was hard. And I'm not discounting any of the horrific experiences that American veterans went through. In fact, I think that we don't really come to terms with that stuff um, in a in a um, in a helpful way either. But but either way, the story. I'm really interested in the story of Vietnam and why we tell the story a certain way, um, and how much we're missing by not really understanding what happened there. What um so were you able to? Did you do any kind of interviews for in preparation for the book? Did you talk to any kind of like firsthand sources? Yeah, I was lucky um, to find some of the people who are participants in the movement um, and people who were were instrumental in like creating some of the coffee houses. And I mean, I even was able to interview Howard Levy, who was um, to me, one of the most compelling figures I found is Howard Levy, who was a, a dermatologist in the army, who was one of the first to uh, refuse orders to go to Vietnam. And he was uh, court-martialed. He was arrested and court-martialed and sentenced to, uh, three years in prison, and he was one of the first um, high-profile cases uh, of refusal, and it, that was in '64, and he became someone who um, electrified the movement. People knew who he was, and he was one of those, you know, names that everyone knew who he was. And there's um, footage of him in a, a great film called Sir No Sir. Um, which is a film that tells the whole story of the GI movement and the, the, the place where I first saw the GI coffee houses. But there's footage of Howard Levy like stepping out of like the military police car and all these GIs hanging out the window uh, with their fists up, like literally like supporting him. And it's this like visual evidence that like there's huge crowds of like these are draftees. These are guys that are, are in the American military they have like black power fists that they're raising, you know, up at Howard Levy as they're kind of supporting and celebrating his decision to refuse um, to train Green Berets to do dermatology in Vietnam. He saw it as part of a propaganda program and he wasn't going to be a part of it. He said it violated the Hippocratic Oath, actually, and, and violated his ethics as a doctor. And he was correct about all that stuff. And the American government sent him to prison over it. And he became a kind of like, one of the martyrs, early martyrs of the GI movement, and there are many others. Um, so I got to interview him at his Brooklyn home. 
Um, and he's awesome. And he has like lots, so many like opinions about the left and like what we should be doing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but anyway, I've, I've, yeah, I got to interview a whole lot of people. Um, another one was, um, Barbara Garson, who was, a uh, she was like a, a playwright who basically quit being a playwright in New York city to travel to Seattle and go work in one of these GI coffee houses. And because she felt very strongly that the key to, ending the war was really like reaching the people within the American military and growing that movement and saying, if we could, the, the, the idea was to basically have like, some people were actually thinking of it, think of it along the lines of a labor union, but they were saying like, if we could basically get the soldiers to create a solidarity amongst themselves, they could all refuse together, right? They could basically go on strike and like say, we disagree with the war. We're not participating in it. So that was the dream. And a lot of, not only like GIs, but like civilian activists really saw power in that dream. They like felt that that was the direction of their politics. And they felt like the left should be doing more of that. And one other thing I'll say is that this, these weren't just people that kind of came up with this strategy on their own. I mean, they're part of a larger you know, trend within especially socialist groups. So this was like the um, the YSA, the Young Socialist Alliance, um, and, uh, you know, the uh, SWP, the Socialist Workers Party, the larger kind of umbrella organization. Um, these organizations, many of them were interested in doing this kind of industrial socialism. They were like, they, they were, in other words, many of them were signing up for the military or going to work in mines or taking work in factories. Basically, the idea was that for socialists to go get work in blue collar environments and organize the people there, right? So like they were basically sending out agents to go do this. And so there were a number of soldiers, like GIs in the army in particular, who either volunteered or allowed themselves to be drafted to the American military and then like or attempted to organize socialism and organize anti-war stuff with their fellow soldiers. So that was like part of a larger thing that was happening in the left during the 1960s. Yeah. It is interesting to, um, like in, part of this that's interesting to me mostly is that Vietnam's kind of the first postmodern war. And uh, yeah. mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Baudrillard at all, but in his in Simulacra and Simulation, he even kind of talks about how in uh, Apocalypse Now was kind of like, that was sort of in a way like in, in the Baudrillardian sense, that was like the real Vietnam War, like the way it was kind of uh, almost like a, a production more so mm-hmm. than an actual kind of conflict in the sense that it was de- sort of detached from that kind of previous, like there weren't images of World War II so much like there are in terms of the Vietnam War, you know? Yeah. I mean, people call it the first television war and and the 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 way that Apocalypse Now, even I mean, especially in the in the like um, extended version of Apocalypse Now, I'm revealing my Vietnam film nerdery, <laughs> I guess. But like in the extended version, they're like Redux or whatever. There, there's like more of that kind of postmodern uh, nods to the production element of the Vietnam War. So you see more of the Playboy Bunny shows, more of like cameramen and directors. And uh, you get the sense that Coppola was already kind of on that on that kind of um, direction of things. He, and, and analyzing the Vietnam War from a very kind of heady, theoretical, uh, media-laden set of metaphors for sure. You know what's interesting? I think actually Oliver Stone 
wrote one of the drafts for that script. But I think also John. Is that true? Yeah, I believe so. Like, yeah. and then also John Milius. Yep. Like it was sort of crafted together. Eventually, I think John Milius is one of the models for um, for Walter in The Big Lebowski. Yeah, I can I, think that's I can true. buy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. makes sense. But yeah, but either way, you... that, that that idea of the of the Vietnam War being this, uh, I don't know, being this nightmare, and <laughs> and this nightmare that you know, what do you do with a nightmare? You kind of forget about it, and you 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 tell yourself a story about it, and you don't really deal with it. And I think that's that's one way of looking at what's happened uh, in the culture with the Vietnam War. It's definitely interesting in the context of like your of your podcast project because here we are sort of, I'm kind of articulating my feelings about the Vietnam War that are all kind of mediated by these popular culture representations. So that's like one yeah. angle too, right? But it's also like, these are movies that I grew up watching too. So there is that nostalgic aspect as well that totally. kind of blurs the whole thing. I don't I don't even know what to make of that, to be honest. But it's yeah, me neither. And, and I mean, we talk a lot about, uh, I mean, most people know about the Vietnam War through these movies. And when I say most people, I mean like, our generation of people that didn't go through the Vietnam War and didn't live through it, but kind of uh, absorbed it through the fact that the previous generation, like above us, was obsessed with it. Like, and you're like, well, the people who are growing up, my parents' uh, generation, were all people, now it's kind of weird to think about, but they were all people in their 30s and maybe early 40s, the boomers I'm talking about. <laughs> who went through the Vietnam War experience and were now raising kids in the 80s. And it had just happened, right? Like, it had just happened to them. I mean, my parents literally did not have children until the Treaty of Paris was signed in 1973, until the war was over, because they thought that, you know, essentially that the war was going to keep going and and that the their kids would be drafted into it. And, and they also felt that, you know, my father was in the Marine Reserves, so it was constantly a feeling that he was going to be going to the war. He ended up never going to the Vietnam War, but there were several moments where, you know, his bags were packed and it was, uh, it, it felt like he was going to be sent to the war. So they felt like we're going to put off having children. So in other words, like something that profound as like not having children because you're scared of your husband dying in war or your children themselves getting sucked into the war in 18 years. That's huge. Like to me that I mean that's touching something so personal and that's like state policy, right? And this is like big big government politics. The the stuff we talk about cold war, communism versus capitalism. Here it is impacting ordinary people, you know, in Southern California in the 1960s who are deciding whether or not they're going to whether or not they can envision having a family, right? So like in other words there's this stain everyone has this stain of the Vietnam War on them and we all those of us who were born in the years after, I mean, I was born in the late 70s, it like, it was something we had to gather. No one like literally told, I mean, my dad talked a lot about the Vietnam War and he told me about it from a very particular, you know, perspective, I think. But either way, we had to gather that like, there is this haunting, you know, that like there is this thing that haunts America and it's the Vietnam War and it comes up a lot in all the presidential elections. You know, it's like they like, they, they all kind of make reference to like, I remember when the Gulf War happened, the first one, they said, we will not do Vietnam again and we will not disrespect our soldiers. So there was this like really over the top patriotism in like 1991, I want to say that was, 
um, I don't know if you remember this, but like the or if you've seen oh, yeah. clips of it, but like Whitney Houston at the Super Bowl in like '91, she sang the national anthem, and they released it as a CD single with like you know red, white, and blue and everything. It was fucking insane. Like the energy of the patriotism um, was really um, aimed at the history of Vietnam. It was saying like we're not going to deal with this Jane Fonda bullshit. And I had to like, again, piece together. What are they talking about Jane Fonda? What is that about? <laughs> Why does everyone hate Jane Fonda? I had no idea. And I should say that Jane Fonda is important to me because she's a big coffeehouse character. She comes up in the coffeehouse book a lot because she was, that was kind of the central thrust of her politics. Her anti-war politics was uh, supporting the soldiers who were anti-war. So, like, she did a whole lot. I mean, there's lots of details in the book about what she's done. And there's a great book uh, by a historian named Mary Hirschberger called Jane Fonda's War, which literally tells of, of the, the, the kind of what, hap- what Jane Fonda did uh, against the war during that era and how she became a kind of lightning rod uh, uh, for, like, hatred and reactionaries, etc. But what's amazing about that book is that uh, the historian... Hirschberger, she, the the sources she used were all FBI sources. So she found Jane Fonda's FBI file. Oh, she wow. she got she did FOIA requests and found that you know obviously the FBI was like tailing, harassing, undermining, um, trolling Jane Fonda for the entire time that she once she entered politics. Um, and you get to learn again a whole different perspective on something that i was told as a kid that jane fonda was just like a horrible witch like a traitor a person who deserved to be burned at the stake and instead when i do some reading <laughs> i learn something very very different that jane fonda is a the, the, the story is no matter what you think of her personally the celebrity all that kind of shit she's a much more complicated figure um she take she took i'm no jane fonda stan really but at the same time <laughs> i mean i have to admire that she took. She didn't have to do anything. She did, and she took huge risks to like declare herself in solidarity with not liberals, but like real radicals in the United States. People who were going to jail. People who were being shot at. Uh, there's a lot to admire in what in what Jane Fonda did, and that's just like one little thing that was like again. I was presented with a fucked up, distorted vision of who Jane Fonda was and what she did. Because we're not really, and still, we've never really looked at Vietnam. And what I was getting at was a Ken Burns thing, which is that Ken Burns doesn't really help either. Because that 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 thing, um, you know, we've talked a lot about it on the on the podcast. But Ken Burns' eighteen hour Vietnam documentary really just repeats exactly the the nostalgic story that that you're talking about. Yeah, my dad was definitely always on that anti Jane Fonda propaganda for sure. But oh he, yeah, he's kind of a reactionary in general, though. Well, what's crazy is like you go to like Jane Fonda anything on like social media, like just her like Facebook page for like her Netflix show with Lily Tomlin. And it's like the Facebook comments underneath are like, fuck you, bitch. I hope you fucking die. And they're like really like intensely like violent, hateful comments aimed at Jane Fonda. That's always to me like this is about something else. The United States government dropped bombs on Vietnam for 10 years, killed millions and millions of people. Somehow it's an actress's fault that an actress that said we shouldn't do that, right? <laughs> yeah. Like somehow it's all her fault and she's the one that should carry. And I find that to be like, like that hooks up with um, 
the kind of like era of like um, witch hunts and like the Puritan era. The like the 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 fact that that so many reactionary men would locate all the hate and rage and aim it all at like this woman and be like, it's her fault. And it's like, dude, she didn't drop bombs on Vietnamese people. She didn't fucking kill millions of civilians. But, but that's the person that we're going to aim our anger at. It seems like it's telling you a little bit about the psychology at play there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. These, sca- these scapegoats. Very interesting. Um, let's see. So, yeah, that's interesting, too, that you mentioned the Gulf War because, again, back to Baudrillard, that's kind of the his famous mm-hmm. article about the Gulf War did not take place. That's right. Kind of building on that idea. But you made me think, though, when you're talking about your parents' kind of anxiety over having kids and, like, this, you know, is this sort of war ever going to end? Do you know much about, like, the whole, I guess, development of the whole conflict? Because if I'm not mistaken, it kind of originally was, you know, obviously the French were the first mm-hmm. colonists there, or colonizers, rather, and there was conflict there, and they got kind of kicked out by the Viet Minh, but... And that was in like the 40s, 50s era. Do you know much about that kind of that context before yeah. the U.S. like getting yeah. involved directly? Yeah. And I mean, that's a so f- during the later years of graduate school, I got I was lucky enough to become part of um, the uh, New York Historical Society was putting on a major museum exhibition of the Vietnam War. And they wanted to do like a whole narrative. They wanted to like do the whole story. They didn't want to focus on any particular part of the war. They wanted to basically do the history of the Vietnam War um, from 1945 uh, to to 1975. So they wanted to do that 30-year period. So that 30-year period, I mean, it's a a long history. But what you're hinting at is that, you know, the basic outline of it is that the the old colonies of, um, of Europe are, they kind of, they lose control of their colonies over the course of World War II. So over the course of World War II, you have these, uh, this, this, the, the beginnings of what's going to become a wave of anti-colonial move- movements throughout the world. And some of those anti-colonial movements are going to be uh, supported by and take the language and ideology of communism. So communism becomes the language of freedom for a lot of of the, these kind of like colonized nations throughout the world, right? And that certainly becomes true in Vietnam, where you have uh, the French have been imperializing, violently imperializing the Vietnamese people since the middle of the 19th century. And I mean, it's bad. I mean, they've essentially made the word Vietnam illegal. The, the, the story of French imperialism in Vietnam is a, is a really, really brutal one. They, 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 uh, the Catholic Church was involved. They're uh, enforcing... Uh, a kind of rule that is the, the the kind of hallmark of imperial government. So there's no freedom for Vietnamese people. And, and Ho Chi Minh is a figure who you can kind of track the whole story of the Vietnam War through Ho Chi Minh because he's there um, from the late 19th century all the way until when he dies in 1969. He's relentlessly trying different strategies to kind of kick out foreign leaders from Vietnam. Yeah. And so those waves happen. And over the course of World War II, you know, um, there's this opportunity for Ho Chi Minh and his movement to to really kind of take control. But World War II is a is a confusing moment in Vietnam in Vietnamese history because the French lose control over you know they 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 uh, fall to 
the Nazi government. And instead, uh, you have leadership that's Japanese in Vietnam. So there's, in other words, it's a, it's a convoluted story that I think a lot of Americans don't really get because there's so much, there's so many different angles. But the basics of it is, is that Vietnam never really had any self-determination. They always had foreign governments tell in their country, um, governing them, um, and deciding their deciding the terms of their lives. So that call for self determination was always, you know, Ho Chi Minh was leading that for for many decades, and he was by the 1920s he was securely a communist. He was seeing communism as really the only path. And it's interesting because he went to France and like asked the Socialist Party in France, like, "Will you help us kick the French government out <laughs> of our nation? Will you do that?" And the Socialists they turned their back on him. So that's why he became a communist. That's why he like embraced Leninism. That's why he uh, decided that there was there needed to be something much more forceful. He felt the socialists were too close to the liberals and too close to like too sold out to capitalism, basically. Um, and so there's a lot I mean, there's a lot of lessons in Ho Chi Minh's story. But either way, by the time you get to the 1950s, 1954, they, at Dien Bien Phu, which I think you made reference to, the, the Viet Minh have stunned the world by uh, defeating the, the French military, which is an incredibly powerful, uh, one of the most powerful militaries in human history. They kick them out and they do it. There's a, I mean, the story of Dan Bien Phu is amazing. I mean, they were hiding weapons in, um, you know, in the jungle for years and years before they uncovered them. And when they um, uncovered these weapons, the French were stunned. They had no idea that they had anti-aircraft weapons, that they had machine guns, that they were able to like launch an attack like this. And part of that was just pure like, they had like a a, a a racial attitude towards the Vietnamese that they could never possibly do this. So I mean, it's a that fifty four is a key moment because that's the moment where basically the the uh, Ho Chi Minh won his victory, um, and Vietnam should have been declared an independent sovereign nation and, and got its independence and got its self determination, but. That's not what happened. There was an agreement with the United States. The United States came in and said, hold on, we're going to have elections here and we're going to try and figure something out. And ultimately, the United States took part in a process through which they split Vietnam into two countries. The United States said that South Vietnam was now an anti-communist state that was fighting the communist north. And the United States starts dumping weapons, starts dumping money into this South Vietnam puppet government um, that by 1964 is completely falling apart. The United States decides to take it over itself, uh, and that's when um, the by the summer of 1965 you have, you know, a few hundred thousand American troops in country trying to enforce, like, um, trying to enforce the uh, the the South Vietnam's anti-communism upon a people who are have now been fighting for their independence and self-determination for decades and decades and the 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 ingredients are in place for what becomes one of the biggest slaughters of the 20th century um with the united states eventually uh killing um you know upwards of three and a half four million vietnamese people and uh, a million more in laos and cambodia i mean it's unbelievable most of those people are civilians uh, and you can go on and on with the level of um, the level of, I think, barbarism that the United States government inflicted upon uh, one of the poorest countries on Earth is something that as I learned more and more about it, I, I kind of grasped that exact haunting that we're talking about, like why there is a haunting. It's because the United States perpetrated something so dark uh, and, and American people were a part of that. 
um, and became entangled in it politically and culturally, etc., it's something that would be very, very difficult as a national process to come to terms with in any kind of effective and healthy way. And I don't think we've done that. And just like, I mean, you can get Freudian or whatever, but like when you repress all that, uh, there's going to be some kind of um, unexpected burblings uh, within our uh, political and cultural landscape. And I think you can definitely see that still with Vietnam. There's so many little nuggets that I can like little threads there too because i think if i'm not mistaken ho chi Minh had come to the u.s as well at, at one point seeking assistance so you yep. have you have mm-hmm. that there's the like that angle of it there's this kind of colonial element that is uh as you mentioned before the apocalypse now redo version that does have the scenes on the french plantation that kind yeah, of goes that's right goes to that as well and discusses dian Vinh phu um so then we have what I'm trying to think. There's even something else that I'm picking up on. I don't know. This makes me think too of kind of from the Watchmen, and I can't remember if it's explicit in the comic book or if it's just the the movie version, where they have the character of the comedian talk about um, kind of what you're saying is like if we if we had lost this war, I think it might have driven us crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can't remember, if, like I said, if that's a direct quote from the book or the. It's definitely in the movie. I don't know if it for sure was from the book, but I think so. At least the sentiment is there. I don't know. Those are kind of like the thoughts that are like swirling in my head now. Yeah, I mean the the in insanity is a common metaphor uh, when people talk about the Vietnam War. I think Apocalypse Now really kind of gets at it. You know, like there's and I, I think there's there there tends to be. I think that part of it can be can be tied into that kind of overly romantic, yeah. like masculine thing where you're kind of like, oh, we all you don't know shit unless you went through Vietnam, which was the, you know, the, the kind of cauldron. Um, so like that part of it, uh, the insanity, the madness. Uh, I don't know. I, I I get it. I get why people go for that metaphor. I get that, it, you know, the especially in when Coppola is making Apocalypse Now, it probably it made sense to kind of see the war through a psychedelic lens, you know, and kind of blurry, chaotic thing. I, I, I Part of me, like, and this is why it's so disappointing to, like, see the Ken Burns shit, not that I expected anything different, but, like, part of me is, like, can we get away from that particular vision of the war and, like, do something totally different that surprises people? I mean, that's part of why... If you read about the Vietnam War, you see this world exists already because it's like, I mean, there's lots of books about, um, you know, the Vietnam War through like songs and poet- poems and art, right? And paintings that, you know, you can see, um, pa- I mean, even even some of the political cartoons that are in some of these underground comics that are uh, in the newspapers, like the radical newspapers of the 60s. Those cartoons are so brutal and so graphic and so like they capture so they capture a truth that's there that is not often seen in all these kind of mainstream productions we're talking about, right? Like they capture some sort of like greater they they, they hint at something that that we're, we're, that 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 is part of the I think would be a part of a process of overcoming the war that's never present in the stuff we look at, right? I think another angle, too, that's interesting to discuss in that context is why, I don't know, There's feels like there's a there hasn't been a good kind of Iraq war, maybe because we're still enmeshed in it, that, mm, that mm-hmm. there hasn't been something. I mean, what, trying to think what's the, 
is there a defining golf even a, hurt i guess hurt locker hurt locker also what's the other one with um jake gyllenhaal oh god i'm gonna uh yeah i have jarhead. that somewhere jarhead, oh, jarhead. Yeah. there you go yeah i was like i read that book i remember yeah jarhead uh there's also um a book or a movie called i think it's called the messenger I want to say it's with Ben Foster and Woody Harrelson and maybe it's called maybe it's called messengers with an S I always forget I showed that in a class once that was about a class that was about peace movements and about kind of reconciliation and stuff like that and that movie is about Iraq war veterans who have the job of going and delivering the news uh, to family members that like their that their family member has been killed in, in the war in Iraq um, and, and the movie, for me, I, ends up being one of those films that explores an angle, at least. I mean, it's still about American soldiers. It's still like front loads the kind of American soldier experience as the primary way through which we're going to understand this war. But at the same time, it really takes on the, 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 the visceral trauma of that experience in a way that you don't generally see. I, that, that film, I think, is... It stands out um, in terms of those films, but you're right. We're in it. So how, what can what what can we say about it beyond that? Like it's just an ongoing tragedy, right? I think it's interesting too, in in the context of maybe more so Afghanistan, that there's almost some similarity to there because you had first like the you, the Soviets were there, and now we're there, and now it's like this prolonged thing that's been going on for like you know twenty plus shit. More than that now, I guess. Or well, no, people like, are calling it the forever war, right? Well, yeah, because what the Soviets I mean, were there in like what the eight, late eighties? In the eighties, yeah, throughout the eighties, I think. I think they started that that war. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think that's like nineteen eighty three that that's that begins. Um, and that's you know, it, people in the Soviet Union or in Russia think of that as uh, very close to the American experience of Vietnam, which was like, why the fuck are we enforcing this kind of political will upon people that are uh, not receptive to that. And it's like, why would they be receptive to it? Would you like it if uh, people with guns came to your street and said, you're going to be this now, and you're going to speak this language now, and you're going to work this way now, and you're not going to worship that church now? I mean, the the level, of, when you talk about like French imperialism, that's what you're talking about. You're talking about language, culture, religion, impacting like the very fabric of people's culture and stripping that. It's, I mean, it's a genocidal notion, imperialism, like at its root. And then when you attach the violence to it, then, I mean, the genocide becomes more, more real. And I, and I think that's, that's part of like the process that I that I that I want people to come to terms with with Vietnam politically is the radical kind of view of the Vietnam War, not the liberal one. Because the liberal one is the Ken Burns one is that this was a tragedy that the Americans kind of stumbled into something they didn't really understand, and then all of a sudden awful things happened. And there's this real passivity to it. There's this real like lack of taking responsibility to it. Right. And so it's like that, that part of it to me is, is infuriating. And why I, you know, when I, I, I think I saw this chart once or some like line that's, it was, I mean, it's stupid to think of politics this way, but it was basically like saying, Oh, here are the different camps of like what people thought about the Vietnam war and like what camps they were in, in terms of where they, where they settled. And the biggest one is always like kind of a liberal, well, it's a tragedy, a sad tragedy. Even a lot of conservatives basically see that. 
but you know, I see it, I see it as a genocide and, and, and that's, that's the radical viewpoint, you know, that's the more kind of, that's the perspective that if you say out loud to people that, Hey, did you know that the United States did a genocide, like as big as the Holocaust in the 1960s and 70s? Did you know that they killed millions and millions of people? Everyone is going to say, even if they're a liberal, they're going to be like, no, well, they didn't mean to. Like we didn't do it. It wasn't like we did the Holocaust. Like we like put people in prisons and then just gas them to death. In other words, even liberals. I mean, I have been in the room when liberals like make excuses and say, no, no, no. Let's not say genocide because it wasn't intentional. It what we didn't intend to, and like we didn't intend to spend billions of dollars over the course of decades filling this country with the infrastructure to perpetrate this crime. We didn't intend to do that. Then what the fuck happened? Talk about some Baudrillard shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like what the fuck? So that part of it, that denial, that's even at the at, like at the heart of the liberal project. Like if I said to Ken Burns, Ken Burns, you should have said that this was genocide because that's what this was. He would be like, no, it wasn't because the Americans had good intentions and their good intentions got mixed up and it became a sad tragedy. And like, I mean, if people came to my country and killed us for fucking decades and killed my whole family, etc., and not only that, but poisoned the, the water, poisoned the land, poisoned the DNA of the people for decades and generations through uh, Agent Orange. If they had done that, I don't think I would say, well, they had good intentions. I forgive them because they had good intentions. It's like, no, their intentions were murder, and that's what it was. And so the, the longer we go, not really seeing that the American military machine is a uh, devastatingly efficient machine for not only perpetrating these massive genocides, but also then recalibrating the culture so that we just all fucking normalize it and accept it. I mean, that's going on right now, right? I mean, it's going on right now in South America, big time. I think that we're seeing shit going on in South America that uh, that is a continued process of America meddling militarily in the affairs of other countries and Amer most Americans be having no knowledge of it and if they do they defend it or say ho-hum about it or yawn about it or whatever Vietnam prepared us for that because look what the American government was able to get away with like they fucking killed millions and millions of people there are people in Vietnam now I mean I don't know if you know this like people in Vietnam have the highest rate of birth defects and child cancers, childhood cancers, than any other country on earth because the United States took chemicals made by the Dow Chemical Corporation and dumped those chemicals by the by millions of gallons of those chemicals into the land and onto the onto the 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 uh, country of Vietnam, and that tragedy will go on for um, generations, yeah. centuries still. Sure. Yeah, I mean it's unbelievable. So like the fact that we can just all yawn about that and say that actually Vietnam was some hardcore shit that some Americans went through is fucking mind boggling to me. It rearranges the whole story and makes it about uh, some sad shit that happened to us when it's like, no, dude, that, that means that we can that the American government can do this again and again, because, I mean, like you said, they're doing it in Iraq and have been doing it for a long time. And, you know, I. Anti-war movement, where, where, where is that? I, people ask that question a lot, but I think in order to understand where the anti-war movement is, you have to understand that larger story and like how much war has become like kind of written into a very particular place that people don't care about or they don't see it as something that can be intervened upon. Because if you ask, I think the polls show, I could be wrong. Like most Americans are like against, quote unquote, the war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan, don't think we should be there. 
But that's like totally inconsequential. It doesn't matter. Like, yeah, you're, we're, the American state is going to do what it's going to do. And that's it. And I think that the lesson of the Vietnam War in a lot of ways is that, which is that they can get away with whatever the fuck they want. And it's pretty devastating to, to wrap your mind around that. And yeah, now the fact that they've ended the draft, I think, really makes it almost impossible. Like, it's really tough to get that kind of a groundswell of a movement whenever it, we can, you know, just continue with consumerism or whatever bland bullshit. Yeah. And they've, I mean, the, the, they've buried what you're hinting at there is that like, they've kind of buried the military service within the working class more than it's ever been. So you've got like, basically the only people that are in the American military that are joining in at that level are more from lower socioeconomic positions that means that those people are already, their concerns are already ignored. Their concerns are already marginalized, etc. So it makes it even more, like you're saying, removed from the experience of everyday Americans. And it used to be that, I don't know, the numbers are, uh, I, I probably have them wrong, but it's something like 25 to 30% of Americans had some contact with the, with the military in their lives. And now it's closer to like four or 3%. I mean, it's like, it's gone down dramatically. So like, if you have no contact with the American military, it becomes something like the whole rest of the American Imperial Project, which is like, you just bury it. I mean, don't people know? I think it's general knowledge that people know in America that all the consumer shit we have is made by like exploitation and horror. I mean, people make jokes about, Oh, my iPhone made by Chinese kids and whatever. Like it's almost like, I don't know. You remember those commercials with uh, like starving African kids? Like those were bit like, what do people do? What is I I'm very interested in the process. Like what happens when people see that and like flip the channel like what hap- what, what what is really happening there? And I, I include myself. Like you, like you, you'll say, I don't want to look at that. But like, what's really happening there? Because it's it's part of a, I think, understanding something profound about the way our society functions, which is that it's all built on, you know, greed and tyranny and exploitation and 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 death. Really, you know, like death of the planet at this point. Like, all the shit we have is death of the planet, and a lot of people know that, even if it's only on an intuitive level, but we all are still plugging away. So that part of it, I think, is something worth thinking about. Like, how is it, how is it that we move through American consumer life while holding in our heads this kind of brutal history that is, that is a part of it, whether we know that consciously or not? That's... If you can solve that, you can like kind of understand I you know what we're thinking about, which is like how do we get people to care? And like not only care but connect it to something in their own lives. I mean it's really I don't have answers for any of this stuff. Um but I I the questions are there and they're they're big ones because they're they're really uh, it's for me it's about kind of moving forward eyes wide open, moving forward um understanding the past in a realistic way and I think that's why I call my podcast the nostalgia trap because it's a trap to kind of romanticize or see history in the past as this set of easy lessons it's instead like something we're embedded in um and a complex thing that we need to recognize uh rather than kind of compartmentalize into easy stories that we tell around the fire uh or make into platoon or whatever you know yeah that's kind of the i think that's the liberal kind of approaches to is to do just that right 
but I think like what you're pointing out to you is that 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 approach doesn't really work. Like there's no fact that you're just going to be able to bring up or like image that's going to end this sort of conflict on its own. There's got to be something else mm. to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And even when, um, even if like Trump were to say, uh, we're bringing all the troops out of the middle East. It's over. You know, it's, it's done. We're, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to engage the American military in the Middle East anymore. We'll be doing diplomacy from now on, and we're going to like have teams of people that are going to try to work this out another way, but we are absolutely not waging war in the Middle East anymore. Even if that impossible thing happened, would that be enough for us to just be like, oh, okay, cool, and move forward? Or what, what process would we have to go through in order to really come to terms with the, these wars and what's happened and what the American military has done to the Middle East, what the process of the war has done to the Americans who, veterans who became involved in it. I mean, there, there's so many tragedies, in other words, that came out of this. It would be kind of uh, absurd to just say, well, it's over and we move on. I, I think I'm calling for, and that's part of what my podcast is about, I guess, conversation, but a greater kind of like engagement with the idea, the historical ideas that brought us to this place. And a, and a greater kind of uh, uh, understanding of of where we've been, so that it doesn't happen again. I know that's kind of a lofty ideal, but that's that's where that's where we're aiming because it seems like history is moving so fast now that we're just like repeating the Vietnam thing again and again and just tossing it away as we're moving through and not really grasping what's happening. And I mean, here here we are, like you know, talking about. Uh, the end of the world coming from like five different angles, you know, whether it be planetary crisis or nuclear weapons or whatever. And it's like, well, okay, but that's kind of sad and kind of heavy. Maybe we should like get why this happened, you know, and like really come to terms with it. And for me, like Vietnam is a great metaphor for, for kind of understanding the, the, the perils of, uh, of memory and kind of mem re remembering things the wrong way. I think one thing that's interesting about this too is, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, is how kind of imperialism functions. And I think a lot of people don't grasp or really contextualize the imperialism in the sense of, let's say we did, like, the, re the reason the stuff perpetuates is because it's materially beneficial, right? It's not, you know what I mean? Like, the whole gl global capitalist order is perpetuated by like these things have to happen in a sense for the system to continue on. And so if you if we pulled out all of our, you know, bases or what have you from all all across the globe, we pull all our troops out, then our entire economy would probably wind up collapsing, right? If the existing thing, you know, like it would it would fold. You know what I mean? And there'd be a sort yeah. of vacuum there. Yeah, I think that that's uh, part of the mystique of the of imperial ideology, and part of the part of the kind of power of it is the sense that if it didn't exist, our world wouldn't exist. Uh, and and what you're what you're kind of describing there is something that is is part of the engine of keeping us there. One hundred percent. As I think many people. 
you got down to it, they would like, don't you, do you don't you sense that many Americans would say like, well, if we, we got to do what we got to do, and if that keeps the gas prices down, that keeps the gas prices down, right? Like, that's about it. Yeah. That's the extent of the political engagement. With yeah, it. I think there is a sense, like, there's a, there's a nihilism on the sort of reactionary and even like liberal, just liberal, like centrist element of it is like, there's a like tacit acknowledgement that we are where we are and what we do is wrong. But because I benefit from it, like their, their idea is it was either going to be me or it's going to be somebody else that benefits. Therefore I have no responsibility and I, I can kind of take this, I don't know, there's like a weird psychological or psychoanalytic element to it of like enjoyment, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. being, living at the end of history. Like, yeah, we know this shit's all going to collapse, but we're here. And if it wasn't us, someone someone else would be doing what we're doing. So we're just going to, you know, continue onward. Which is, I mean, a, a few people have pointed out, is a, is a kind of genocidal attitude in its own way, but like towards like future generations. So like we're, our genocidal attitude is like towards like our own like children and grandchildren to say like, well, we're, we live now, fuck them. You know, that's their problem. Like people have that attitude in, you know, you hear this, um, with well, all over the place, that kind of nihilism to the point, I think it's going to be a feature of climate change. You know, I feel like that will be a feature of the politics of climate crisis will be people saying, fuck it. Like it's the end of the world, live it up. And I, I mean, in, in a sense, we're already yeah. there, oh, yeah. right? There are like, uh, there is that attitude of like, just fucking enjoy the ride. And you even see that on the left. I mean, uh, you know, I feel like, you, you see that the the attitude that can be um, a kind of bacchanalia, <laughs> a, a apocalyptic bacchanalia. There's a podcast a pod, podcast title for you. Um, but either way, the 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 weird freedom that feels like it accompanies the end of the world. I think we have to anticipate that pe- that's going to come out in kind of interesting ways, right, and unexpected ways. That, I mean, I feel like I read something about like the Saudi Arabian royal family, like have this attitude where they're kind of like, oh, he gives a fuck about future generations. We know it's yeah, over. We're living like kings. It doesn't matter. Like, yeah. yeah. This yeah. resource is finite, but we're just going to live it up while we can kind of attitude. Isn't that like the story of all American history, though? Kind of, you know what I mean? Like, fuck it. Like, they, like there's this sense of like, yeah, we know the Indians are dead. We're gonna build this anyway. You know, like this kind of sense of just like, who gives a fuck about history? We're gonna do what we want to do. We're gonna like enforce our will upon it, and our will is to live like this. And like that, that part of it's horrifying to me. And like, even as someone who is sitting right now in like a comfortable. Uh, suburban home that was built in the post-war period by government subsidies. It's weird to to kind of like, in other words, the, the suburban home I'm in right now that I'm is is a home that was built in some ways as part of the Cold War project, right? So like to the the kind of living in that contradiction of the the comfortable lifestyle and kind of being away from the real bad news, which is essentially the people that are. 60 million people walking in the earth right now, uh, you know, refugees, people are dying in war, people are suffering badly. People are suffering badly in the United States, in prisons, right? In detention centers. I mean, people are, so in other words, I have the kind of awareness of the like comfortable lifestyle and people tend to call that privilege, which is amazing. Like, oh, you're privileged because you, you eat. 
Like you eat food, so that's a privilege. <laughs> but like either way, the construction of those kind of cultural politics to me are, are something that we, we all should keep in mind. And I keep in mind that with the way that um, the way that as we sit in you know comfortable lifestyles, that those lifestyles are dependent upon in some way upon all that horror. But at the same time, the sitting here and feeling guilty is not helping anyone either. Yeah. And that part that that part of it you know, it's like the guilt is, is like, okay, it's good you feel the guilt because the guilt means that there's some recognition that there's something wrong here. But guilt isn't helping anybody. And like guilty liberals are the most fucking obnoxious <laughs> people on earth, right? Yeah. They don't really, they're, I mean, every liberal is guilty like this, ex- performatively guilty. Oh, I'm so bad. I shouldn't have this, you know? I shouldn't have this, but I'm indulging. I'm doing self care. Whatever they they put they put on a big show of like defending the lifestyle while they're saying I know it's bad kind of thing. In other words, there is a seed of recognition. So like I wonder like it, could there be a politics that's built around that that like kind of moves beyond the guilt impulse towards something more active on something more closer to taking responsibility. I'm not talking about ethical consumption. I mean, I want to crush capitalism. Like that's uh, for me. Like capitalism is the poison, and that's what like humanity needs to overcome in order to get to the next stage of evolution. So to me, like band aids, like paper straws and shit, aren't really cutting it because it's really just upholding the structure. And I mean, it gets even worse than that when you talk, think about Bill Gates and philanthropy and all that shit that like isn't really doing anything. Yeah. I mean, Bill Gates can throw billions of dollars into all his projects, but the planet's still going to die at the same schedule. You know what I mean? So how helpful are those projects? I, I think that moving beyond that is the goal. And, and for me, like, you know, I don't know how that happens, but ethical consumption seems like, I don't know, a, a small maybe step towards something more, more real. But I don't know. What do you think? I mean, it's really interesting in the context of kind of where we are in the U.S. in terms of this kind of blooming of, a social democratic or even if you want to be generous democratic socialist idea is even that like this there that's still coupled to this imperialist economic situation as well you know what i mean and yeah like it's those are hard contradictions yes. to swallow it's really dude. tough like when yeah. you think about you when you think about unions and you think about the especially the big unions uh, and how much they're dependent upon imperialism, and how that came out very clearly during the Vietnam War with like the AFL and like a major auto union, major industrial unions um, that were 100% supportive of the American government and like rooting out the leftists within their ranks, etc. Like the unions were not the friends of humanity um during the vietnam war and when i say that i mean the big unions there were smaller unions and i think the working class was more against the war than um than the than middle class or or upper class people but either way the unions were you know not really helpful um and and they're connected to imperialism in the sense that the more capitalism the more the working class benefits from that right so like it's kind of this handcuff of unionism is that it's connected to capitalism so thoroughly that it is capitalism and and if you ever are in a union now or go to union meetings it's like it's to me it's always just incredibly depressing to like witness the lack of power and witness the kind of groveling that people have to do to win like 
1% raises over the course of 10 years and shit like that. I'm like, why are we waiting around for this? We could accomplish this a lot faster with a much more aggressive and radical and militant movement um, than unions. So and unions like provide a kind of, I think, uh, important history and important structure and maybe important direction to move. But we need uh, we need to separate from the the, the mothership of capitalism. And, and that part of it is... Uh, how is the, how do we accomplish that? I don't know. Right. Let's talk to our Marxists and anarchists, <laughs> etc. <cetera>, but <laughs> uh, man, more podcasts. That's how we do it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It at least is good to get the ideas out on and get the angst out, other than like feeling completely powerless in the face of of global capital. Because yeah, I agree. You, and like how meeting, do you build meeting you meeting people like you, Cooper, online. I mean, it sounds <laughs> trite. But like uh, I've I've come in contact with a huge community of people who I guess would call themselves the left, but I, you know I think I feel like it's something even more I, I would like to think of it even more diverse than that. Yeah. But like this kind of connection with understanding and talking about capitalism and kind of centering a critique of capitalism as a way of understanding why our lives are so shitty. Like, and why um, the historical moment we occupy is so fucking depressing and alienating. Like, for me, finding a critique of capitalism was the light that turned on and allowed me to really understand things and, and really feel not helpless and feel not alienated. And as, as much as that's still hard to battle in a world of just nonstop bad news, uh, having the kind of community of people that also feel the same way and understand that there are structures and answers to these things that have been explored by people for centuries now, right? Like understanding that tradition and understanding that that tradition continues and that we as people of this generation are having like our moment to move that ship and that podcasts and Twitter and all that, uh, you know, shit posting, whatever, all of that is just to me the 21st century 2019 cultural language right. of of something that's an impulse that's been there for forever uh and, and so that in that sense it's exciting to be part of uh, a historical moment that is epic i mean we're in like fucking epic shit in the world and i think that you know we we all sense that since our lives began you know i mean i i think i sense that the vietnam war was epic and that the shit i was going to live through would be epic too and like once 9-11 kicked in and all that like now Trump is president, it seems like the big archetypes of historical energy are very present. And that means that we have deep shit going on around us and we have deep responsibilities and deep kind of commitments to each other that we can develop that I, I don't know where this is all going, but you know, I, I think that I'll be interested to get past the 2020 election oh, man. and see where all this kind of energy that's, that's kind of focused on Bernie and focused on Trump and like all that, like where does that energy go without a, an election to focus on? But you know, you say that, but then it'll just be like the day after 2020, everyone's talking about 2024. Right. And like, that's all we're talking about. is 2020. And like that to me is just really that cycle of electoral politics is really depressing. I try not to like get sucked into it, but at the same time, since I'm an American historian, I'm very drawn into like those kind of big archetypal shifts and what they might signify. So living in Trump's America is, uh, it's really, it's weird to say this, but it's part of the dialectic, right? Is it's kind of like, there's a kind of sick excitement 
to living in Trump's America, which is that it's both horrific and something is compelling about the idea of transformation and that we might be in something that is that will take us beyond the banal horror of living in America in the 21st century. So something's happening. Where, what, what it might be, who knows? I, I feel like, you know, I studied the 60s so much, people during the 60s really felt this too, right? Like they felt like we're in the middle of something epochal, you know, and you, I think it, it can be dangerous, I think, to suck yourself into that thinking too. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the moment that we're in, in 2019 seems like a moment to, an opportunity to reconcile a lot of those contradictions. And I'll be interested to see what, where all the DSA energy goes after uh, after 2020. I think the real wild card would will be the next uh, recession, which is, mm-hmm. you know, obviously there's, there's, I think we're feeling the, what is it, the, uh, the things that precursors, the precursors to an actual earthquake, the tremors of it, right? I think globally, but I think that there may be a space for a radical movement to really take hold during that, during that um, kind of thing. Cause I think, I mean, things have already been bad in this like 10 year recovery in quotes that we've been going through. So I think things will get really, really interesting as that. New- well, yeah, that's the engine we're talking about, right? With the lifestyle that, Fuck, man, the phones and everything have given people a sense that they're having, like, fun and they're engaged in something, you know? Like, if the phones weren't there, I think there'd be a lot bigger kind of alienation that you're talking about. And, the, you know, when you're really, when you're saying the recession will change things, it sounds like part of that is that, part of our perception of that is that the recession will change things because that lifestyle will go away uh, for a lot of people. And if there's no comfort and no to living in America and it's just hand to mouth and great depression style social reality. Uh, you're right. I think that that's an engine for historical Fucking change right. as well, <laughs> you know, and where that goes, who yeah, the fuck exactly. knows? Cause right? I think do a to a lot of it is going to hinge on the election as well, because if Bernie's elected and things go South in terms of like a great recession, a depression style economic situation, then I think the reactionary side to that is going to be, extremely scary like the reaction there already is and then also like if if trump is reelected, then i think that's definitely it's almost better for the left for trump to be elected and for there to be a recession to spur on like i think maybe that could be sort of a foothold for radicalism to to spread and like some actual change to be implemented but you know what i mean like it's all it's that knife's edge of like yeah shit what what is the best outcome here like what will he- like what will help us more? What will drive people more? Like being depressed by like a major loss and wanting to like overcome that, or being energized by a major victory. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, um, like I, I, I almost feel like if uh, the scenario that the nightmare scenario of like Bernie Sanders actually winning the Democratic Party nomination and going head to head against Trump and then losing. <laughs> Uh, the national election to me would be so brutal um and the left would be like okay you're gonna have to start doing something beyond electoral politics at the national level like you're gonna have to like move beyond this and get get to doing real politics i mean my 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 thing always is like what what is this movement without bernie like if you take bernie out 
where is this, right? Like where, it, because, and I don't mean just like leadership. I mean, kind of like, what is the movement and what is the nature of the movement and what is it doing and what it, how is it attacking the system uh, beyond just like hoping Bernie wins and like hoping his kind of coalition of people get in. Like that part of it seems like it's it's hinting at some bigger questions to me. Even so though, it's like that kind of great man of history approach to politics too, because yeah, let's say even if Bernie does get elected, what real power does he have directly? Like you're going to be facing off against the, I mean, <laughs> there's a capital flight as a, as a risk. There's also just the states. I mean, look at the fits they threw about Obamacare getting passed and states suing the federal government. Like there's enough kind of bullshit Roberts. I this is not exactly right, but like Robert's rules of order type shit built into the whole governing the whole system. apparatus, the entire it's dude, the constitution, everything preventing, it's preventing it's all barriers yeah. to this. Yes. Like it's, it, it, in fact, that's the hallmark of the government. That's the hallmark of those institutions is that they were created to, as barriers to that kind of radical democratic change or that kind of popular uh, movement. So, you know, when when P- I know people are like, don't be negative, but, you know, I do think about the Senate. I do think about the Supreme Court. I do think about all the layers of um, institutional kind of barriers that are there to prevent this type of stuff. Uh, uh, you saw it with Obama. But although, you know, I don't think Obama was a radical in terms of what he was proposing change. But either way, he didn't get to even pass even moderate change, you know, through with Republicans saying no and all that kind of shit. So. Either way, uh, yeah, I, I'm very skeptical about how much, uh, you know, one man can can change things in the White House. That being said, I mean, it is kind of having lived as long as I've lived now and seen a couple cycles of elections. It is kind of a miracle to see Sanders being like a front runner. It means that it means that something has shifted yeah. and it means that there is a, a, a conversation. I mean we're talking about here is like growing up talking about capitalism was like hush, like it's secret. Like knowing about capitalism is like some secret thing. Like that you only hear on like Noam Chomsky tapes and (laughs) shit like that. Like you, it's really like an underground literally. I mean, anti-communism succeeded in this country, uh, by, by locating that stuff and a critique of capitalism as something that was outside of the normal cultural experience. Like you don't locate that. There's no store that's like, here's the store where you learn about anti-capitalism. So like the fact that now like tons and tons of people are out in the open, like discussing capitalism as a system and whether or not it's a system that can deliver the goods like that, that conversation is kind of amazing to see taking, even taking place. I mean, I have seen older people. I know people like to fuck with boomers, but like even boomers are with Bernie, dude, a lot of them. And they're like very much kind of see him as building on or continuing the social justice and economic justice stuff that they were concerned with in the 60s. So as much as we like to think of boomers as all a certain type, uh, Bernie is kind of within, I think he's talking to that generation too. Um, and so the, the, the cat, the fact that young people and older people are all having conversations around capitalism in part because Bernie Sanders is like kind of enforcing that or bringing that notion up to people that that's amazing. I don't know if it's too little too late or where it will go again, but it means that there's 
more people onto the right story than ever before. Very true. I mean, I don't want to get too acceleration-y, but I mean, I'm almost to the point where it's like just the material circumstances have to get bad enough. That's the only way. Like capitalism is like a fire. It it has to burn itself out at this point. Not that like we shouldn't... Like obviously if a revolution happened, yeah, that'd be fucking amazing, but... Like, I don't just don't think the ability is there for some kind of like you like think about in the United States. Like, what the fuck is that going to take? Like, how is that going to play out if there's an armed revolution against the U.S. Army? You know what I mean? Like, what uh-huh. the f- that's almost. Un- Do we have the fortitude of the Vietnamese to wage a decades long guerrilla war? Because, you know, you say, like, how would you anyone ever defeat the American military? You know, the Vietnamese yeah. did it. And they did it, uh, but they had to sacrifice millions and millions of people. I mean, it's a long, ugly story. But either way, you know, I, I think those kind of scenarios are, for me, like exciting to think about. And I think that I've thought about them all my life in some way. It's like, you, you know, is it so out of or is it so uh, unrealistic yeah. that a country that killed 600,000 people of each other right here? I mean, this happened. Like the Civil War did happen. And not only that, it is like the signal event of our history. Is the is and what was that over? Race, capitalism, property, like you know the shit that still is very much at the heart of what f- pisses people right. off in America. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I feel like we're so like uh, you know lost in the kind of consumer online experience right now. The culture of capitalism is working is working for most people, and they don't really talk about it that much. So yeah, it's gonna be a while. I've got- it, it, it would take it would that uh, that's part of honestly, dude. This is part of why I think about like aliens and crop circles and psychedelic drugs and stuff like that because it's the only way I can imagine. I, I have to imagine some sort of mystical or some sort of other like um, kind of accelerant. To, to 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 really bring out this is part of what like Timothy Leary and them were talk, were thinking about like when they wanted to put acid in the water, they were like they want to put acid in the water supply uh, LSD so that everyone will trip and then they'll all like kind of build the utopia or they'll have the values which is kind of an absurd idea but I get what they were aiming at which was saying that like we're tired of waiting we're like we understand that capitalism needs to collapse how do we fucking make that happen and not only make that happen but like make everyone else see the necessity of it uh and again the only way i can ever really imagine that is like some sort of tremendous thing happening some sort of like intervention maybe you know we all start having the same dream drawing us to las vegas you know or something like that you know we all start we all see something in the sky I, the power to me of religious of religion and the power of of a kind of um, touching something deeper at, at the core of the human experience beyond that that's what that's what would be needed to kind of overcome the you have to some you have to replace the powerful mystique of capitalism with something and I think that the socialist or communist governments that have failed in the past besides being just destroyed by outsiders and insights etc there are lots of forces that have destroyed them but one of the mistakes they've made is not like kind of creating the culture and creating the kind of human experience that's meaningful um because capitalism is just cheap easy shit and that's what people are going for now so you need to give them something else yeah there's a there's a something i've been thinking about i've been like obsessing with 
um, is this kind of idea that there's kind of borrowed from Lacan a little bit in like psychoanalysis is there's a libidinal appeal of capitalism and there's some yes. kind of like the, I don't know, the underlying like something about consuming and desire and the, especially now that we have smartphones, it's like there's an endless array of new desires that we can have at like our absolute fingertips. So it's like, it's always feeding us this, libidinal thing that is kind of tri- tricking our subconscious, right? And I think somehow we have yeah. to, to break that spell. Communists or socialists need to, there needs to be a libidinal element to that movement. Otherwise, mm. I think that's the <laughs> biggest challenge is overcoming that aspect of, because the the wider imagination of communism or social, like it's, right, it's drab, it's gray, it's blah, blah, blah. Like it's, there's a lack instead of, it's got to be seductive. Yes. Um, so right now, you know, the idea behind communi- communism, people are afraid of it because they think it's taking things away from them. But they, we have to change that and show that what communism is about is giving things to people. Like, we have yeah. to flip that yeah. switch somehow. And I don't think it's as simple as just, you know, having the, like I said, having the right fact or that kind of liberal interpretation of how society well, transforms. Well, yeah, and I... That's why, honestly, I became fascinated with the counterculture um, in the '60s and '70s because they were their their notion was, and uh, can we just like this? This is what led to the building of GI coffee houses and uh, hippie communes and you know parks and things like that. The, the idea was to build institutions that kind of modeled what life could be like outside of capitalism. So I'm really interested in that notion. Yeah. I wish people were doing it more, um, which is building, I mean, to me, like uh, libraries and college campuses offer really great models for what a city could look like um, and add some farmer's markets in there. And you're, you're starting to like create something that is what a world could be, you know, a space that's meant for sharing and learning and community. Uh, the, that, that is the seduction that you're talking about. And that's what the GI coffee houses were trying to do. They were like putting counterculture stuff on the wall. They had posters of Bob Dylan and like they were they were really trying to aim for like, hey, this is where you party, this is where you hang out, this is where we kind of have fun, and then the politics will come yeah. from that. So yeah, that's absolutely right. I think that the left needs to think much more along the ends of culture and movements. And that's like not chic in the left. Uh, the left is like Nope, we got to go straight back to economics. We got to go straight back to Marx, and we got to go straight back to industrial unionism. And I'm like, okay, well, where's the yeah. seduction? Where where are you giving me any desire to do that? It's got to be as seductive as as in, uh, nonstop, infinitely available internet pornography. It needs to be yeah, that. That's what we're really up against Literally. when we're up against capital too. And yeah, to that point, I think for me, like. I th- and I, you know, I'm pretty pessimistic, but you know, I'm anarchist too, in the sense of like, let's I say you're better off building that kind of a thing, like having in place mutual aid networks and kind of dual power type things where you have food co-ops, like that shit is where your energy energy should be, rather than wasting you know all of your money on on the Bernie campaign, which, like I said, even if you get successful, <laughs> and yeah, like. In a sense, I would be elated, but at the same time, like, it's not really going to care, you know, liberate us from capital if, if Bernie Sanders gets elected, you know, that that's just not going to happen. So, I agree. 
Yeah, and 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 it's going to and and the worst way of looking at it, the most ungenerous way of looking at it, is that it continues capitalism and strengthens capitalism and puts the juice in the machine to keep it going because. The, the reason we're anti-capitalists in part is because we understand that capitalism can never run without theft and exploitation. Uh, that's how that's what it is. That's the, that it is literally stealing the labor of others and taking that wealth and, and using it, it yeah. for and fucking hoarding it. Pri- yeah, for, for private purposes. Right. So when I think about like the Dow Chemical Corporation uh, dropping millions of gallons of uh, um of Agent Orange poison on the people of Vietnam. They did that for money. They did that because they got huge, massive contracts from the American government. In other words, we paid for it. The taxpayers paid for that. But the end of that process, the end of the process of like millions of people being killed, gassed, um, you know, uh, deformed, that, that horrific process, the end of that is that shareholders made a shitload of money and like some dudes got to put hot tubs in their backyard and live like really lavish lifestyles because they got contracts with the american government to sell that poison to them and do that so like that to me i know it's like going back to vietnam again but it's a really stark example of how deeply we're connected to this and how disgusting the very idea of continuing capitalism for another day is so when i hear bernie sanders you know saying like let's bring those factory jobs back and shit like that i'm kind of like well what are we really looking at dude like what are we really saying and those those of us that are cursed to really like be anti-capitalists anarchists communists whatever we're cursed to always be the ones that got to point out like sorry but your bernie sanders ain't worth shit um especially in an era when capitalism has really got the chokehold on more people than it ever has in human history, that is morally indefensible position to continue that for even another moment. So, yeah, that's maybe that's the dialectic really is how you view Bernie Sanders, because I, I, I can go back and forth because, again, you know, work within the limits of American politics. OK, now we got something. But uh, that's the thing is, don't you think that those limits are self-imposed? Like we're saying, oh, Bernie's the best we could do. But like, why is that true? Does that have to be true? I mean, is there another path? I don't know. Yeah. Huh. Big questions, dude. Always makes me, I mean, this is part of why I'm an anarchist is that like, like you're talking about these executives that can go and they can buy their, whatever they can enjoy the material benefits. It's like, Whenever you abstract people from the consequences of their actions, bad shit happens. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Every, exactly. Everybody yeah. needs to have a stake in society, and that stake needs to be equal. Otherwise, shit gets fucked up. Anytime you play with that dynamic, and I'm sitting in New York, and, you know, bombs are getting dropped in Vietnam, like, I'm disassociated from those actions, and we as consumers, like, that's that same relationship's occurring, right? Like, Horrible shit's happening so that we can have these computers to conduct this fucking podcast right now. But we're so disassociated <laughs> from those consequences. And that's how it can persist because, yeah, there's that gap between those people and us. And so you have to make it real somehow. Yeah. And move beyond feeling yeah, guilty exactly. about it, too. You know, move to, I mean, going from. Going from affect to action, I think, is a lot of what we're talking about here, right? Is kind of like the affect. Because like, it's like that woke thing, right? Of like, well, I, I feel like part of what 
wokeness is, whatever that might be, is a kind of neoliberal, kind of neoliberal like attitude towards diversity, attitude towards sexuality, you know, a very kind of free progressive attitude about human beings while at the same time you're like participating in capitalism in like a really, really aggressive form. So it's like, you know, tote bags that say, you know, I love NYC and it's like the heart and it's like rainbow flag and like stuff like that, where it's like that to me, those are really positive things in the sense of like, okay, messages of inclusion, you know, things like that. But at the same time, you're, you're a dumbass if you don't see how that language has been exploited and like how that language is being um, used to kind of put a cover on the exploitation, etc. cetera. Um, and you can talk about that forever, but like woke capitalism and neoliberalism, that's, that's the, that's the current language, you know, that's the current language and culture of capitalism that needs to be overcome is the, the feeling that we can have it all, the feeling that we can be woke, uh, anti-racist, uh, pro-gay, you know, pro-immigrant people at the same time that we're participating in the very system that really oppresses and fucks with all those people and all those groups in particular still. Like, let's not act like we've overcome all of those prejudices right like just because we wear rainbow flags and stuff like that like gay people are still in precarious position and like that requires a much deeper engagement with politics and economics to really and culture to figure that out and neoliberalism lets us off the hook and tells us no like it's just you know perform perform your goodness like ellen and you can go hang out with George W. Bush. And it's like, no, like, I think a lot of people are done with that. I think that the Ellen thing, people, they're shocked by that. They were shocked by the backlash to that. And they're kind of like, a lot of people are like, you know what? I'm fucking done with this shit. I'm done with watching the phoniness. And, and like the phoniness, don't, back to electoral politics, but uh, and I know we should probably wrap this up at some point, but like the, uh, Hillary Clinton in part one, or in part lost because of that phoniness. Because of that, I think, larger, and I think it's part of because people are savvier, people are more critically engaged because of media, social media, that they see right through. They see right through Hillary Clinton, and they locate an inauthenticity to her um, that's very close to the lying that goes on in the whole culture. And Trump's a liar. Trump's full of shit. But for whatever reason, he comes off as more authentic to himself or to whatever that they're... In other words, that election indicates something important, I think, about what people in the American electorate, at least, are looking for uh, moving forward, which is more people are seeing through the bullshit than ever before. I think that's the basic idea, is more people are seeing through the bullshit. And if that's true, then what are they, again, if they see that the whole system is phony, what are they going to instead? And that's scary, because the left hasn't really built a seductive set of institutions for them to come to. And the right is always, it's the right has a seduction they do. They already. They absolutely do. And right? I mean, you just pointed out, I think like that libidinal comparison or contrast between Clinton and Trump, really just, that's like the big picture comparison. Yeah. That's, Whereas like fascism is always like rape and murder and authority and domination. And like, it almost has a sexuality yeah, to it There's already. Like a, like a sadistic. Yeah. yeah. So like the right... The left's job is always should be like, like to to kind of figure out how to counter that libidinal urge to become a fascist, but without like I don't know I'm I'm very skeptical of moralism too, <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah, yeah, oh yeah, for sure. So I don't know how be. that 
like I hate moralism on moralizing on Twitter and all that crap. And I don't think that really does anything. You're not going to defeat people with moralizing ever. But I don't necessarily know how to like no. give make communism sexy either. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. The moralism doesn't work, and the shaming and all that kind of shit. Uh, yeah, you see. I mean, you see it on social media. Actually, I mean, it, it, they to defeat Trump, the you know the left, the left or liberals or Democrats, whatever, they're going to have to engage in a different form of communication. I mean, you're a you're a media person. You we started this conversation. You talking about majoring in a in mass communication, right? So it's like. There is a game to be played, and Hillary Clinton and that, not only Hillary Clinton, but like Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren even, like all of them that are doing this kind of establishment, hokey, Hamilton, we love the Constitution shit, I think they're playing a game that's fucking oh, yeah, over, dude. For sure. But I could be wrong about that. Maybe the West Wing shit will <laughs> come back, and we'll all be fucking nerdy-ass Barack Obama technocrats okay. again. But I feel like oh, that, that ship has sailed. definitely sailed. If anything, yeah. I think we're headed into some kind of neo-feudal hell world, <laughs> even worse. But I, I, I don't know. Hopefully, there's rock and roll. Let's <laughs> hopefully, do there'll it. be a space yeah, let's enjoy for something it. better. Um, but yeah, I agree. Um, and you know, it, it, you hope that that will be the engine of uh, people building the institutions that need to be built beyond uh, you know boutique magazines and shit like that. Um, we need to be having conversations that are in the real world. You know, and 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 really talking to people that are outside of the typical structures of the left that we think about, uh, and that has to do with class and race and culture. I mean, we have a fucking a huge set of tasks ahead of us, um, but I think part of that is 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 kind of getting out of the old conversations and into some new ones. Yeah. Well, hopefully, we did that a little bit today. Um, I think that's a good st- stopping point for us. But I do want you to pl- plug your stuff, man. Cool. So uh, my book is called Dangerous Grounds, uh, um, Coffee Houses and, uh, and anti-war, Anti-War Coffee Houses and Military Descent uh, in the Vietnam Era. Um, and my podcast is called Nostalgia Trap. So if you want to go to nostalgiatrap.com, uh, check out all our episodes. We've been doing it for five, Dude, five years, years now. Um, yeah, interviewing uh, academics, you know, professors, but also media people and uh, working class people and kind of trying to uh, connect the left uh, from a, a different f- uh, perspectives and, and give something to uh, particularly younger people to understand some of these broad ideas and where they come from. And for me, you know, I was always lacking the connection to these ideas because in american culture still even though there is like a you know rising left thing happening now that it's very hard to find these ideas and to find the left uh one of my favorite books uh about the about american politics is called finding the movement um which is about feminism in the 70s and it really gave me the idea to like think about coffee houses and uh bookshops and libraries uh, cafes softball leagues even she talks about women's softball leagues but like stuff that people do beyond the kind of pontificating about politics which i feel like you know how many atlantic baffler articles do we need over and over again like let's build things and i think that the ideas are already there putting in people in contact with those ideas is is a starting point and that's what we try to do on nostalgia trap so cooper i really appreciate you having me on thank you so much i really enjoyed it uh always fun to talk about uh like i said those vietnam movies are part of like a nostalgia (laughs) uh, element for me in terms of childhood too so 
That was a nice connection point. But uh, once again, this is podcast. Kerf Cooper here signing off. Including the ultimate form of security, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thomas people as in the block work orange.